We're going to be looking at uh, Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. Um, the context here is Jesus has just, through his apostles, Jesus has just healed a man in the very temple courts right outside the temple of God in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus, through, through his apostles, this man who was miserable, he had to be carried around by his friends and set out to beg, suddenly could walk and run and jump and get reintegrated into the life that he had lost because of his disability. And Jesus had done this, and the religious leaders were furious. And so the early Christians are about to get in a lot of trouble. This is Acts chapter 5. I'm going to be reading beginning in verse 17. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible, it's page 1698. Hear now the word of God. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. And at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. And when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and they sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers didn't find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, there was no one inside. And on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. And then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And at that, the captain went with his officers and he brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. And having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. That's the name of Jesus, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious, and they wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt 
he too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, and they had them flogged, that's whipped. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. What do we see here? We see the good news of Jesus is unstoppable. It can't be stopped. The early Christians were told to stop. They were threatened to stop. They were jailed. They were whipped. They were beaten. But nothing could stop this message of Jesus. The text says they never stopped proclaiming the good news. What does it mean to be unstoppable? It means you can't turn it off. You can't make them stop. You know what it's like when something can't be stopped. You know what it's like when you can't turn something off. Some of you have pets. You know what it's like when they don't ever give up. We've got a video. Can we play that video of, of Unstoppable Cat? Um, he really wants this croissant. Um, I mean, you know, this cat is never, ever going to give up. It's unstoppable. And that's how the gospel is, the good news of Jesus. People can command it to stop. You can pressure it to stop. You can throw people in jail. You can try to make them stop. But it's never going to stop. It's unstoppable. The gospel couldn't be stopped in the past. You know, uh, we've got a photo here. Uh, well, it's not a photo because it was before photography of, 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 of the lion's den. We talked about this. Some of you, we talked about it in children's church if you came to my booth and, and lingered. Uh, uh, this is the Colosseum in Rome. And, and the Romans would throw prisoners sometimes to, to the lions as sport. They would, they would beat these lions. They would starve the lions. And then they would unleash the lions on groups of convicts to be eaten. And the Christians were told at times, you know, if you'll just reject Jesus, if you'll just worship our gods, if you'll just offer incense to the emperor, blessed be his name, then you'll be fine. And the Christians refused, and they said, no, we don't care. You can kill us. We're not afraid to die because our God can raise the dead. And the Christians went to their death with a dignity and a peace and a confidence because they knew that Jesus would raise them again from the dead. They would see the face of their father, and they would see each other again. Others would run away ways, cowering in fear as the lions chased them down, the Christians would kneel down and in peace pray and commit their spirits to their God and Savior. The gospel was unstoppable. We got another picture. This is of St. Patrick. He was a, 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 just a young teenager, really just a young boy, when he was kidnapped by the pagan Irish. He was a Roman Briton, uh, and he was kidnapped and brought over to Ireland and enslaved. And at one point, he escaped and made his way back to Britain. And from the safety of Britain, he felt such a burden and a passion for his former Irish captors that he voluntarily went back to Ireland to tell them the good news about Jesus because the gospel, it's not stoppable. We've got another one here. This is Ophilas. 
Ulphilas also was a slave. His parents and his family were enslaved by the Goths, who were pagans who lived across the Black Sea in what today is, is Crimea and, and Ukraine. And, and he was Cappadocian. He was, uh, originally, the family was from what's today Turkey, and he was raised a Christian. And, and from his position of slavery, he began to tell his Gothic captors, even, even royalty, about Jesus. He even developed an alphabet for the Gothic language. When you see those Russian letters that are all Cyrillic and you can't quite make them out, he invented that so that he could translate the Bible into the Gothic language. And he started the Christian church among the Goths, and it spread and it grew. He translated the entire Christian Bible into Gothic with the exception of the Book of Kings because he thought the Goths were already too violent and kings would not help them. Um, There's so many stories we could tell about St. Augustine who discovered Jesus in a Milan garden. We could talk about St. Francis. We could talk about Martin Luther, where the the good news of Jesus captured his heart. Uh, So many millions of people. We've got another image here. This is of uh, a cemetery in Seoul, South Korea. It's the uh, 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 Yine Wajin Foreign Missionary Cemetery. It was built to honor 145 missionaries who died serving Christ on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, recently, Phil Yancey uh, visited, and, and he, he walked around the cemetery, and here were his thoughts as he recorded them. He said, Some of these gravestones date back more than 100 years, and the caretakers have added stainless steel plaques to recount the stories of the various Christian missionaries who were buried there. He says some faced persecution for leading protests against the brutal Japanese colonial rule. A couple with the Salvation Army began a long tradition of caring for Korean orphans. A scholarly Presbyterian, thank you, contributed greatly to the Korean translation of the Bible. Two women pioneered education for girls by founding schools and ultimately a women's university. Another American woman who came to Korea as a medical missionary developed Braille, suitable for the Korean language, and established a school for the blind. But Yancey writes, my favorite story was of S.F. Moore, who gave medical treatment to a butcher who was deathly ill with typhoid fever. The butcher survived and became a Christian, only to find that no church in Korea would allow him in, because Korea's rigid class system scorned butchers and those who worked with dead things as the lowest social class, and so Moore supported a freedom movement to fight such discrimination, and he organized a butcher's church for outcasts and social underdogs. He himself died of typhus at the age of 46 while treating others. Each plaque spelled out the hardship of men and women who were buried there. Many of these missionaries lost children there who were buried in little tiny graves beside their moms and dads. And yet the fruit of their work lives on in the schools, in the libraries, in the hospitals, in the church buildings that dot the landscape of modern South Korea. And their work lives on because the gospel is unstoppable in the thousands of missionaries sent out by the Korean church to other nations around the world, including the United States today. Because the gospel, it's unstoppable. Jesus had said, my kingdom is like a mustard seed. It starts out so tiny, the littlest of all your seeds, he said, and yet my kingdom, my saving rule, it starts out little, but it grows, 
And it grows and it grows and it's become, going to become such a huge tree you would never imagine. Jesus said that, that his gospel is like a little bit of yeast dropped into dough. And it starts out at just one point of the dough, but it doesn't stay there. It spreads until it leavens the whole lump. It's, it's not stoppable. And it can't be stopped then, but it can't be stopped now. You know, you look at that message of Jesus and what it's doing around the world today. We've got another image here of a refugee uh, woman. Uh, Miriam is not her real name, but Miriam lived in a Syrian neighborhood during the Syrian civil war that was scarred with shrapnel and bullet holes, uh, reflecting the fear, the hurt, and despair that filled her young heart. Uh, you can almost smell the dust of the crumbled concrete around her as her family made their way through the rubble in hope of reaching Jordan. Uh, this neighborhood walking through that had once been her home. It's crumbling apartment buildings in ruins. You can imagine the shock of the shells falling from the sky, the explosions that once made her jump, but which do so no longer. You can imagine walking through the deserted streets and seeing apartments where the wall is gone and the furniture is open to the sky, a teapot sitting neatly on a kitchen table now visible to the street, the family that lived there having fled just as tea was being served, you, at least you hope they fled, leaving this table behind that's set with their finest china and closets that are filled with dresses and shoes. You can almost picture the shop windows that she would have passed, shuttered to never open again, the exodus of families carrying all their belongings that they can carry, the little girl with the backpack on her back uh, strapped to her containing only one change of clothes, her teddy bear and enough insulin to last two or three weeks at most. You can imagine the mother's pained expression as she grabbed her hand and encouraged her to press onward through the rubble. You can hear the dogs howling for their owners who have moved away or passed away. The things Miriam must have seen and still a young woman, like so many, her family escaped the fighting and survived their harrowing journey to a refugee camp across the border in Jordan. And while there, within that camp, one afternoon, Miriam encountered something that she had never experienced before because Miriam encountered her first ever Christian a follower of Isa, a follower of Jesus, an infidel and a believer to her own people, but something was different about this person she met. There was something about this follower of Jesus, and she wanted to understand her, why her new Christian friend believed in Jesus and not in Islam. And so her friend explained to her about the love of Jesus and about the hope that she has in Jesus. And, and Miriam was, she was concerned, but she was also curious. She asked a lot of questions. She read about Jesus and something at some point in her heart changed. And this Jesus that before had just been a distant prophet suddenly became something incredibly beautiful. Jesus and his death on the cross for her became more beautiful to her even than Islam. And you can almost imagine her waking up one morning and thinking to herself how Jesus has become beautiful to me more beautiful than anything in all the earth. You can almost see the moment when she gets down on her knees and prays, Lord Jesus Christ, you are the Son of God, and I now worship you and receive your gift of eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving my sins. You are now my Savior. I call upon you as my King. Almost immediately after trusting in Jesus, Miriam started going to a Bible study that met in the camp. 
And as she learned more and more about Jesus, her joy could not be contained. Even though every cultural and religious pressure, uh, force pressured her to be silent, Miriam began talking discreetly, but telling her friends about what she was learning, telling them what was going on inside of her and what she was experiencing. This was so different from the, the religion that they had all learned at home, a God who loves sinners, a God who sacrifices himself for his enemies. Uh, the excitement was unstoppable, and Miriam's friends wanted to see for themselves. They wanted to read for themselves, and so Miriam had to help start more and more Bible studies. She began to dream of seeing all of her fellow refugees with smiles on their faces, with souls filled with supernatural peace and joy in knowing that Jesus had rescued them. And at one point, Miriam turned to a Westerner who was also working in the camp, and she asked, how many Jordanians and Syrians are there? She wanted to know the total population of both of these two countries. And the Westerner answered, about 30 million. What was Miriam's response? I want to see 30 million people becoming followers of Jesus in my lifetime. See, it was unstoppable. One other Syrian follower of Jesus applies the simple theology of an uneducated, theologically uneducated Muslim background follower of Jesus when he summarizes what he sees. He says this, Satan has caused this warfare, but God had, has used this evil to lead us to Jesus, which never would have happened otherwise. See, even in the face of the worst cruelty that human beings can muster, the good news of Jesus is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. Why is it unstoppable? Thank you. It's unstoppable because it's from God. Uh, you just look at the story. You know, the disciples are told to stop preaching. They say, we, who are we going to disobey God in order to be faithful to you? They're locked up overnight. They're going to be on trial the next day. And while they're in jail, what happens? But this angel appears we don't have any details. What did this look like? How did they know it was an angel? Was it shining? Did it have wings? Was it in flowing things? Did it glow? I don't know. It doesn't give us those details. But an angel appeared and got them out of the jail and told them that they're supposed to keep preaching. And the next day, that's where they were. It, it couldn't be stopped because God was in it. Uh, indeed, Gamaliel's own words, respected, really great Jewish leader. Look at these other movements. We've had false messianic claims in the past. All sorts of people have claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. All sorts of people have claimed to be the Christ who would lead us to victory. And we killed every one of them, and every time we scattered their people, and every time the movement died. We did it once. We did it twice in our lifetime. We all remember this. We did it a third time with Jesus. And if he's not the Christ, if he's not the Messiah, we've scattered his followers, it's going to go away. But he says, if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. The message of Jesus is unstoppable. Uh, and it's not just unstoppable thing that, that affects big, adult, grown-up types. It affects children, too. You know, uh, how many of you remember Sophie Knight? Did you know Sophie? Any of you knew, knew Sophie? Uh, she was a member here. Uh, she had her first communion here. Um, you think of all those kids that grow up in church. And... Uh, you know, they, for many of them, there's, for many of you, there's never been a day that you haven't known the grace of God. There's never been a day in which you haven't known that Jesus died for your sins and that God is your father and that you're part of his family, the church. And, uh, and you know, I, I think of, of a kid like, like Sophie 
growing up in a church. And, uh, and I, I have to wonder if someday when, you know, she sits in a church and there are all these pastors giving these really remarkable conversion testimonies of people who had the radical life change at the age of 30 with the background in, you know, satanic ritual abuse and drugs and, 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 and going from atheism to Buddhism to child sacrifice or whatever, and then suddenly Jesus appears and poof, they're saved. You know, I, I have to wonder if a kid like Sophie growing up hearing that is going to think, gosh, my testimony is really boring. And yet, as somebody myself who became a Christian in college, I look at a child who gets the gospel at a young age, and I see that as the bigger miracle, because that's something only God can do. How can you even understand the gospel when you're like six years old? So, so Sophie, interestingly, she, uh, she wanted to take communion and she was six years old. We have her picture here. Could we get the picture? So we love Sophie. We miss Sophie. Uh, but yeah, so uh, she wanted to take communion. So, you know, the, the process is you, you meet with, with me and maybe another elder, and, and we'll sit down, we'll interview you, and we ask the questions. We ask, talk about the vows. Can you take this vow? What do you understand? And Sophie was so good. She, it was like she had been rehearsed. She, every answer was so perfect and concise and clear. Immediately, I was so suspicious that she had been coached because their parents, Xander and Amber, were both brilliant. And, and, and she's a really smart kid. And so I'm like, okay, I, I'm going to have to break through layers of parental conditioning to find out what she really does believe. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a very gentle way. So I get down next to her and I, and I pull out the diagnostic question. I look over at Xander and Amber, and they're like, okay? Like, okay, now, Sophie, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about this. Now, if something were to happen to you today, and uh, you didn't make it, if you were to die, and I'm looking over at Xander and Amber, their eyes are getting really big, and I'm like, sorry. Um, but if you were to die, and you were to stand before God, and if you were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And her eyes got huge and her jaw dropped and she put her arms on her side and she said, but you promised. And at that point I was like, she's in. She's a better Christian than me. She gets the gospel. But God is doing that in her that she at age six could say, my hope, my my life, my destiny is not based on my personal religious experience, but on the objective promise of God outside of myself, the finished work of Christ, what he's done, and the fact that he has promised salvation to those that seek him through Jesus. Friends, that's the miracle. That's the power of God. God is still changing lives. It's unstoppable. Thank you. That's good. So, last question. What's so special about this good news about Jesus. It's unstoppable. It's unstoppable because it's from God. But what's so special about the good news? First of all, notice it's a message of new life. The angel tells the disciples as he breaks them out of the jail cell, he says, tell the people the full message of this new life in verse 20. If any man is in Christ, the apostle says... The old is gone, the new has come. He is a new creation. Jesus spoke about being reborn, born a second time, born again, about an experience in which God suddenly becomes beautiful to you. And the gospel is good news to you, and you freely own that you're a sinner, and you freely and, and 
and willingly receive the gift of eternal life because, because it's suddenly true to you in a way that perhaps it had never before been. It's a new life. It means having a new life that's no longer separated from God, no longer overlooked, no longer kept back. It means that you get a seat on the plane. Did any of you see the TSA Instagram post? I think it was last Christmas. I can't remember. It was a while back. But uh, recently, some travelers through LAX, that's the airport in Los Angeles, were informed by the TSA and their airline that their giant teddy bear would not be able to accompany them on their flight. Uh, They had actually bought the teddy bear a ticket, but the TSA posted an Instagram picture of it. Can we get that next one? Uh, The TSA post showed this giant teddy bear sitting alone next to a trash can where he had been abandoned by his owners when they learned that he couldn't come with them. They had purchased the ticket, but he was not allowed through security and had been left behind. And the TSA's tweet read, Why does this gigantic teddy bear look so sad? He was abandoned by his owners at LAX after the airline and TSA determined that he was just too big to be screened as a carry-on and taken on the plane. I mean, look at him. The post led to hundreds of comments, many of them outraged. This is not okay, TSA. Oh my gosh, this makes me sad. A headline for Time magazine read, The TSA just made this giant teddy bear homeless. Friends, if you have Jesus Christ, then you will always get a seat on the plane because Jesus, through his birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign at the right hand of the Father now, has already gotten you a ticket and he's already gotten you through security safely to your plane. You have already made it through to the other side and he will get you to your destination. That's what it means to have a new life, to have a place with God. It's a new life that continues to capture people, thank you, to lay hold of them. I read about a German prisoner of war from the 1940s. Uh, David Howard describes uh, the experience that he had when he was a student encountering this POW in the 1940s. Uh, David says this, he says, He arrived at Wheaton College during my junior year, 1947 to 48, a German who had spent time as a prisoner of war. He was now working as a janitor. He was sweeping halls and cleaning the restrooms of Blanchard Hall. My fellow students, uh, you know, many of my fellow students had served in, in the war as well. Some had been POWs themselves. And we heard this guy and we wondered, was he, was he a Nazi? Or was he just a regular guy who got conscripted into the German army, but, but we couldn't talk to him. We couldn't speak with him because he didn't really speak any English and we couldn't speak any German. And so he was always a nice guy, young guy, would smile as he passed. We'd greet each other. But, but then Jim Elliott was in the class one day. He later died as a missionary in Ecuador. But Jim said, guys, we need to get together and pray for this janitor. Uh, we don't know his story. We don't know what, we, what, what he's done, but we need to get together and pray for him. And so week after week, they would get together and pray with him because they couldn't communicate with him. All they could do is ask the Father to show him Jesus. After a time, they all left Wheaton and lost track of each other and hoped somehow God had worked. And it was 30 years later, David writes, that he was at the Lausanne Committee, which was a group of Christian leaders from around the world. Uh, They were meeting in Hamilton, Bermuda, And he says, one afternoon, we delegates 
30 years later, had some, some free time, and so we hung around the streets of downtown Hamilton. And he writes, I was standing at the waterfront with another committee member as we looked at some of the ships that were tied up at port, and one was a large British submarine. My companion, who was from Germany, looked at the submarine and commented, you know, I served in Hitler's submarine corps. I was fascinated. I asked for more details. He said, toward the end of the war, as the Allies were sweeping across Europe and crossing the Rhine River into Germany, Hitler pulled most of us off the submarines and naval vessels, which really weren't any help at that point to Germany. And so he put us on the front lines as infantry. And one day I was on the front lines in Holland and I was wounded. And as our troops retreated back further into Germany, they left me there and I was abandoned and captured by the British. They sent me to a hospital in England. But the rest of my contingent retreated eastward and was captured by the Russians, and most of them were never heard from again. I asked him what happened next, and we, he went on to explain that he had gone from England to the United States for a period of time. He said his name was Peter Schneider, and he was the chairman of the board of directors of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association in Germany. He spoke perfect English, and so he served as Billy Graham's interpreter whenever Billy Graham preached in Germany. We have a picture of him interpreting for Billy Graham. Suddenly, my mind began to spin, dredging up memories of 30 years earlier. Your name is Peter Schneider? That was the name of the janitor in Blanchard Hall for whom we had prayed. I asked him, Peter, did you ever work at Wheaton College in Illinois? Why, yes, he replied. I worked there as a janitor. I swept the halls and cleaned the restrooms in the main administration building. My heart left with joy. I burst out, Peter, were you a Christian all that time? No, he said. I became a Christian later at a camp that I worked at in Wisconsin. When I was at Wheaton, I knew nothing of Jesus Christ or of his gospel. Here I was, David writes, here I was standing at the waterfront in Bermuda with a major Christian leader from Germany who was committed to proclaiming the gospel to all the world and for whose salvation I had myself prayed unknowingly 30 years earlier, Peter, a German prisoner of war, having been in Hitler's submarine corps, gaining eternal life, a seat on the plane, a place in God's family, all because of the good news of Jesus. This message is a story of new life from God, that Jesus died for us. Verse 30, verse 31, he rose for us in order to purchase both repentance and forgiveness for his people. Not only to make the offer of forgiveness, but by his death, he actually purchased your actual conversion, your repentance. Your turning to God was purchased at the cross. It was fully, finally, and forever set at that point that you would become a Christian because Jesus did that through his death and resurrection. He purchased it for you. He's like the judge who stood in court and, and, and a horrible criminal was brought before him and done terrible things, done them on purpose. You could see the shame as the conviction came down, the verdict came guilty, and then because the crimes were so great, the penalty was certain death. Then you watch as that very same judge walks down from the dais, down to the floor, turns himself over to the bailiff, and says, set that man free. I am now going to pay his penalty for him. I will die so that he can live. That's what Jesus did for you. And now he's our prince and our savior in verse 31. That he is that, that 
that story that we keep hearing over and over again, not just in Western cultures, but in Eastern cultures and every culture of, of that prince who left his great throne high and far away, who left it in order to set out on an errand to rescue the captive damsel. He sacrifices everything in order to rescue her, even giving up his life so that she can go free. Friends, the reason that message resonates with us so deeply in every culture throughout history, in all its forms, that basic longing for redemption from bondage and from death and from all the evil that holds us back inside and outside, the reason it resonates with us so deeply is because it is what we actually need. And it is what God has actually done. Because Jesus was that prince and savior who left his castle far away in order to come down to us to rescue us. One time, friends, it was actually true. Jesus is that prince. And you are the one he rescued. And he did it because he loves you. He loves you completely. There's a children's storybook by Debbie Gliori called No Matter What. Um, the UK version is the good version. The American version has uh, horribly destroyed the story. But uh, this is Debbie Gliori, no matter what. Small was feeling grim and dark, playing toss and fling and squash, yell and scream and bang and crash, break and snap and bash and batter. Good grief, said Large. What's the matter? Small said, I'm a grim and grumpy little small, and nobody loves me at all. Oh, Small said, Large, grumpy or not, I'll always love you, no matter what. Small said, if I was a grizzly bear, would you still love me? Would you care? Of course, said Large, bear or not, I'll always love you, no matter what. Small said, but if I turned into a bug, would you still love me and give me a hug? Of course, said Large, bug or not, I'll always love you, no matter what. No matter what, said Small, and smiled. What if I was a crocodile? Large said, I'd hold you close and tight and tuck you up in bed each night. Does love wear out, said Small? Does it break or bend? Can you fix it, stick it, does it mend? Oh, help, said Large, I'm not that clever. I just know I'll love you forever. Small said, but what about when you're dead and gone? Would you love me then? Does love go on? Large held small, snug as they looked out at the light. The moon and the dark and the stars shining bright. Small, look at the stars, how they shine and glow. But some of those stars died a long time ago. Still, they shine in the evening skies because love like starlight never Dies. Friends, there is a love like starlight. His name is the Son of Righteousness. His name is Jesus, and he died, and he rose again, and he defeated death, and he will never die again, and his love for you will never grow dry. It will never run out. Once you have him, you have a love that will never end no matter what. There is nothing that will be able to stop this message of Jesus, not it's reaching you, not it's reaching the world, because the good news of Jesus cannot be held back. This message of new life is unstoppable. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for giving us your son and for entrusting us with this message of new life and salvation in him. 
Father, we commit to you the elements of this table, of this sacrament, that you would proclaim the good news to us, the objective good news that stands set and fixed, that Jesus is a Savior of sinners. So I say to all of you, the Lord be with you. And, also with you. and lift up your hearts. We lift up the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. And so at this point, we're going to be inviting all of you to come forward to the Lord's Supper. If you are here and you belong to Jesus, 